Hi, um, my name is Darren Washington. Um, um, well, good morning. Um, hi, um, my name is Darren Washington. Um, behalf of LA4, glad to welcome you to our third, third, right? Yeah, our third class in our series, Wonderfully Made, a Reexamination of Scripture and LGBTQ Plus People. So first week we had Smitty Hevener from Queer Wellness Center and we kind of took this wide lens view about all the things that we're going to be discussing in our class. We looked at science, the Bible, history. Then um, last week we had um, Debbie Kaiser who led us through the Old Testament passages examined by the book Unclobber. This week, uh, Mike is going to lead us through the New Testament passages that were examined in the book Unclobber by Colby Martin. Um, and then looking down the road, we'll have another guest speaker in next week from the Queer Wellness Center. Um, and then look at our book, Transforming, uh, our second book, the last two weeks of the class. Um, so again, our format, I think many, most of you have already been here before. Our format is that this is more of a lecture style than discussion based. Um, Michael will be available today, right after the service. If anyone has any, anything that's been sticking in their mind from this week or the last couple weeks, and you just want to come by for, for a chat, um, feel free to do that. We also have our clunky questions luncheon that will be coming up November 6th. I believe I'm getting that date right, whatever the first Sunday in November is. Um, again, all are welcome here, whether you're feeling tentative about discussing these issues in church or you're excited about it or somewhere in between, everyone is welcome here. Um, and then also, um, if you've been here before, we went through the group guidelines. I'm not gonna read through all of those. I put them in a handout on your table, so you should have one within reach. Just, you know, keep those in mind as we're we're going through today. And Maureen is reminding me to tell you that if you have any questions, you can also write them on the blank cards that are on your table and put them in the basket on the way out. Um, and uh, we will get to those at our at our clunky questions luncheon. Um, or you can, again, you can talk with Mike after the service. So um, at this point, I'm gonna have Mike come up and open us with prayer. Thank you, Aaron. Um, about the clunky questions, you know, the idea is that sometimes, and I fall into this category, we don't know how to ask our questions or if we think we know what the questions are, we don't know if we're asking them well or not. So we're just acknowledging that sometimes our questions are a little clunky, but we need to have the space to be able to ask those. So after worship today, I'll be back in here. If anybody wants to sit down and chat about any of the stuff we've been talking about, I'm not claiming to have all of the answers to anything, but I'm certainly willing to engage in the sort of the, the Q&A conversation really uh, that that if you would like to to do that so um and then we will have the luncheon where we do a little more clunky questioning and converse conversing um uh down the road on november the what where's aaron sixth november the sixth yeah um let's open with a prayer god of grace of grace and mercy we praise you and thank you that in christ you are reconciling all things to yourself we are humbled that you have entrusted the ministry of reconciliation to us 
So send us your spirit, the same spirit that led Jesus to cross boundaries for the sake of those who lived on the outside, on the margins, as outcasts. The same spirit that inspired the prophets and the apostles, and in particular, the apostle Paul, whose letters we will study today. May all that I say in this hour serve the gospel of reconciliation, the gospel this apostle taught to the church, in the name and for the sake of Christ and his body, and for the sake of the world you love. Amen. So I, I thought it was appropriate to start today, before we jump into the text, by sharing that my journey with these texts that we are about to study is very much like Colby Martin's journey that he shares in his book, Unclopper. Um, mine unfolded about 10 years earlier than the author's journey did. Um, and thankfully, mine unfolded within the Presbyterian Church USA, which has been contentious enough, but not quite as hostile as the experience that Martin describes in his um, evangelical church in Arizona. Uh, but the paragraph on page 104, I thought, describes my experience um, almost exactly in some ways. Um, so when he's sitting down with the openly gay pastor um, after he's been fired from his church, after Colby's been fired, and he's sitting down with this uh, pastor, Todd, who asks him, so who was it? And he, Colby says, uh, who, who, who was what, I questioned. Um, was it a brother, a cousin? Who was the person close to you that came out of the closet and caused you to reevaluate your theology? No one, I chuckled. Assuming we become friends, you will officially be my first gay friend. He was astounded as I explained that for me, moving to a place of being an open and affirming Christian was the result of pursuing academic integrity and doing my best to follow where Christ was leading me. Um, for me, it was uh, a combination of studying the scriptures, preaching regularly, reading theology, um, as well as being lovingly challenged by peers in the church, my community of interpretation, who were straight, but who were affirming and open and who were, who were making arguments that I listened to and considered. Honestly, and strangely enough, I cannot say that I've had any openly gay friends until I moved to Greenville, South Carolina, of all places. Uh, many of you know that I grew up in an evangelical church. It was a PCUSA church that eventually went PCA. Um, so if you know the story of those denominations, that'll tell you something. But um, I learned in that church to love studying the scriptures. And it was a place where God instilled in me a sense of call that eventually led me into pastoral ministry. Uh, and so far as biblical credentials go, I have to say, I've been studying the Bible since I was knee-high to a grasshopper, as they say. Um, I went from there to Presbyterian College, and even though I was an accounting major, I took Bible electives just for fun. Uh, and st still, even so, by my final year at Union Seminary in Richmond, when I took my ordination exams, um, would have been in 90, 1995, um, I believed at that time that as we said, then homosexual relationships were against God's intention for human life. In fact, when I took the ordination exam in Bible, the New Testament passage assigned for exegesis that year was none other than 
Romans 1, 18 to 32, which we will be considering today. Having been taught by Bud and Betty Ochtemeyer at Union, who are the parents of Mark Ochtemeyer, whose book I'm going to draw on a little bit today as well, um, I concluded in having been nurtured by them, I concluded in my exegetical paper that Romans 1 taught that same-sex sexual relationships were against God's intention. I simply had never been introduced to these historical and rhetorical arguments and analysis um, that make the case that I will be making today with help from Martin and Ochtemeyer. Uh, these things just weren't taught in this way at Union in those days. Uh, those arguments were beginning to emerge. That study was beginning to become more prevalent, but they weren't taught in the Bible classes I took at Union. Uh, so over the first years of my ministry, I kept reading and listening, and I believe that through Scripture and the interpretive community, that God has transformed me by the renewing of my mind so that on this issue, I believe I'm no longer conforming to what I now think of as a disobedient pattern of this world, pattern of the evangelical world. Um, namely, I believe that God has opened my eyes and my mind and my heart to affirm that gay and lesbian and bisexual orientations are part of God's good creation and should be affirmed and fully supported by the church. It took me longer to come around to affirming same-sex marriage. I went through a period of, of affirming a separate covenant, a union, um, a blessed union. Um, but I support and voted in favor of the PCUSA's change in the definition of marriage to be quote, between two people, traditionally a man and a woman, but thus opening the door for same-sex marriages. So enough about my story. Let's jump into the passages. Um, I will be presenting um, material from Colby Martin's book on Clobber, which this class is based on, as well as portions of Mark Ochtemeyer's book. Again, Mark, the son of Bud and Betty Ochtemeyer, who taught me at Union. Uh, and I believe Bud had come around to these some of these views by the end of his life, and it was after both of them had both of them had passed away that Mark published this book. Um, but I'm in presenting the views of these books, I'm presenting views that have also been my views since the late 90s. Um, we'll look at chapter eight in Unclobber, Reconciling a Fractured Community, and chapter seven in uh, the Octomire book, Reclaiming the Witnesses, part two, Making Sense of New Testament Fragments. And I like that he calls these fragments because these are minute sections of passages of scripture, um, words and phrases that have been used for centuries. Um, and I would say, along with Mar Martin, un uh, misused for centuries by the church. So um, Paul begins Romans with, uh, after a a word of greeting to the to the church and a word of thanksgiving to God for the church. He begins with a statement of the gospel, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, everyone, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And in that first little synopsis, you get a sense of why he's writing this book, the context in which he's uh, this whole letter is to be understood. Um, and that is the, the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles in the 
Roman church. Now, for a long time, Romans has been thought of as being different from the other letters of Paul and that they were more occasional letters written on particular occasions in the life of the church to address particular issues. And when you read those other letters, you can see between the lines or just right there explicitly the issues they were dealing with. Romans seems more kind of like a theological treatise. And so often that's been called, you know, uh, Paul's more pure theological work. But I have to say that that is that's nonsense. Okay, this letter was written to an actual church in Rome that had its own context, had its own cultural challenges. Um, and it's state it's, it's clear right here and kind of what he's getting at, that salvation is for everyone who has faith the Jew first and also to the Greek. And, and this plays out um, in theological terms throughout the letter, but it is clearly the context of what was going on. Um, in, in 49 um, AD, the emperor Claudius had, had kicked all of the Jews out of Rome. Okay, so you had this church that was both Jews and Gentiles. And then in 49, all the Jews um, were forced to leave Rome. Uh, and so for about five years, the, the church in Rome would have been just Gentile and run by the Gentiles. Okay, after Claudius died, the Jews were allowed to come back in. And you can imagine um, the Jewish Christians coming back after the church had been run by the Gentile Christians for about five years. There's going to be some friction. There's going to be some conflict. Um, and it's addressing this conflict and, and the fact that these two groups of people truly belong to the same body. Um, that this is what Paul is addressing in Romans. So after he makes this beautiful statement of the gospel, he jumps into this um, kind of jarringly different section of the first chapter of Romans, um, where he starts talking about the guilt of humankind. Uh, he jumps in with this language of, of the wrath of God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And he goes on for like 13 verses just um, elaborating on the wickedness of, of, the, of the Gentile and pagan world. Therefore, he says, God gave them up. Uh, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. The Jews to whom this letter was sent, along with the Gentiles, the Jews would be nodding their heads at this point. Yeah, those pagans, um, because this was familiar language to them. Within the context of that long passage, uh, we've got what we're discussing as the one of one of the clobber passages, the passages that have been used to clobber um, the LGBTQ community over the years. For this reason, as a part of an example of this um, degradation that Paul's describing, for this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural, and in the same way, also, the men, giving up natural intercourse with women, were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. So... What's going on here and what you can see when you kind of recognize this passage in the 18 through 32 for what it is historically and rhetorically, um, it's a rhetorical strategy that Paul is using. That's a recognized historic rhetorical strategy of his time. It's 
it's an Aristotelian uh, strategy out of Aristotle's book on rhetoric, his writings on rhetoric. So he presents a statement of the gospel, and then he launches into what can you can tell from the language as a self-contained discourse that matches the tone and the structure and the purpose of what Aristotle would call an epideictic discourse. Um, it, and it sounds very much like language that you would hear in the wisdom of Solomon. It's, it, and the purpose of a discourse like this is to blame someone and to ramp up, you know, whip up your audience so that they join you in the blaming and saying, yeah, this is, these people are bad, you know, so they're, they're, kind, of, they're kind of with you in your, in your case that you're making. Um, and this blame discourse would have been familiar to the Jewish community as a fairly typical rant in the day against their pagan uh, neighbors, against the non-Jewish world. You can go to the Wisdom of Solomon, um, a non-canonical for us, a non-canonical text that you can read this kind of thing. So he goes from this beautiful statement of inclusion. He goes into this um, discourse where he changes the style a little bit and his tone and his language, which probably means he's taking it, borrowing it from somewhere else. But he's, he's laying a trap for his hearers, a rhetorical trap. And as soon as he gets to two, to chapter 2, he springs the trap. We've got a gotcha passage. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. Now, notice that this shifts from the third person, they, to the second person, you. He's laid a rhetorical trap, and he springs that to jar his Jewish listeners into what they're doing in their attitude towards their Gentile siblings. And then as Paul goes on throughout Romans, he ends up refuting the perspectives laid out in this passage, 18 to 32, whether... God's wrath is revealed now against ungodliness. He says later, no, God's wrath is still to come. Um, and this idea that God has specific judgments against the pagan world, against the Gentiles, he goes, no, God shows no partiality. We're all, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, and we all need this grace, and we all need this faith. Um, in other verses, he talks about God giving up on people and just saying, fine, go on with your wickedness. And he says, no, God gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. The gospel is that God doesn't give up on us. That's what Jesus came to show us. So Octomeyer looks at this passage and says that Paul's point is that in self-righteously passing judgment on their pagan neighbors, his pious hearers, the Jewish Christians, also substitute creatures for God at the center of their lives. Rather than allowing the true God to pass judgment, they have given free reign to self-righteous passions and taken on the role of judges themselves. Given this turn in Paul's argument, it is ironic in the extreme that so many passages, so many Christians have used this passage in Romans to pass judgment on their gay and lesbian neighbors. It's to totally miss the context and totally miss the point. So I want to take a look at some of the words as well within this passage that has been used as a clobber passage and that I wrote my essay on and my uh, that seems to be critical 
um, for us to think about. Some of the languages in here are degrading passages or passions rather, uh, natural versus unnatural relations or intercourse, and then shameless acts. These are the New Revised Standard Version translations here. But I want to look at some of the history of these translations um, and consider what the Greek words actually say. So we're going to dig into Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. Strong's has been around for a long time. So the words you read in Strong's, you, I want you to ask, okay, how much of the words that you read in Strong's for interpretation are shaped by the cultures through in which Strong's concordance was written and how much from the actual Greek word them itself and the, and the um, use of it in ancient Greek, Greece. Um, so dishonor, this, this word that um, degrading is, is, comes from another translation is dishonor. Um, it comes from the root word atimia, um, which means disgrace or dishonorable use or without recognized value, atimia, because time um, actually means value or worth or price or honor. Um, so without value, without honor is what this word is degrading or, or is not necessarily it. It's, it's, you get at the root of it. It's about not having value. Um, unseemliness, the one that's translated shameless sometimes, and somehow has the word shame brought into it, um, is eskimosune, um, and has been translated in a variety of ways, as you can see there. Um, but it comes from the Greek word a, without, and schema, like a scheme, a form, uh, without form, improperly formed or deformed or improperly fashioned, and often used in the context of something that is not like a tool that's not fashioned properly, fails to fulfill the needed purpose, right? I mean, a hammer that doesn't have the head on it to hit the nail, it's not going to fulfill the purpose, right? So dishonorable passions actually when you get at the root of that greek word means passion without value follow me stay with me shameful acts shame the feeling of shame is nowhere in that word it is it is nakedness in this context nakedness without proper purpose so the question is what is the value of a sexual relationship what is the purpose of a sexual relationship? Think about that. I mean, is it just making babies? Is that the only value and purpose of a sexual relationship? I mean, what about intimacy, joy, love? What about strengthening the marital bond? Um, it seems that there's more than just getting the job done um, as a value or a purpose of sexual relationship. But it's because it's, it's that what's being referred to in this passage um, is that these men and women were engaged in relationships that didn't produce more children, um, which also has been a concern as we learned last week for, for the people of Israel trying to remain a, a viable people um, in, in a, a lot of, uh, difficult circumstances. Okay, so 
the degrading and the shameless and shameful kind of language maybe isn't really to the point of what's what's going on in this passage from Romans in the first place. Now, this question of natural versus unnatural, um, physicos meaning is an adjective meaning natural or according to nature or animal of our kind of our animal nature is one way it's used. Um, physicos, different ways it can, um, different definitions would be, um, you know, produced by nature or inborn, agreeable to nature versus the way it's used in Romans is parafusen, which means opposed to nature. Uh, and then governed by the instincts of nature. So this is kind of the, these, these are the different ways that this physicos or physicin was, was used in, um, in the Bible. Um, the, that was an adjective. This is the noun, physis, um, inherent nature, origin, or birth, um, inner nature, the underlying constitution or makeup of someone or something. And to flesh this out a little more, Strong's has lots of different ways that this um, is, is used in context. Um, speaking of the nature of things, that which is contrary to nature's law against nature would be parafusen. Um, sometimes uh, it's used in the sense of people being guided by their natural sense of what is right and proper. You might think of common sense in this way. Sometimes it's used as a mode of feeling and acting, which by long habit becomes nature, which sounds more like nurture, right? Our habits are things that are nurtured and practiced. Um, sometimes it's used as, you know, it's, um, nature is used to stand in contrast in the scriptures with a heart and life that's wrought through Christ by the blessing of divine grace. So grace versus nature is sometimes a theme, a theological theme. In the scripture. And then also there's this idea of, well, it's just his nature or her nature, the, the properties and powers by which one person differs from another. What is their character? What is their nature? So as you can see, complicated word used in a lot of different ways in the Bible and in, in English, it's also used a lot of different ways. But to sum up kind of all some of the different ways, nature of things versus that which is contrary to nature's law or against nature. That's one way it's used. Or a natural sense, an intuition maybe, about what's right or proper. Or a mode of feeling and acting which by long habit has become nature, which sounds less to do with like the way things are created and more with our habits, our, our culture and our nurture. And then sometimes used to stand in contrast with the change of heart and life wrought through Christ by the blessing of divine grace. Now, consider this. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes about head coverings. And I think this might have been in the first class as well. Um, judge for yourselves, is it proper, prepon, that's a, another Greek word we won't talk about, for a woman to pray to God with her head unveiled. Y'all prayed with me this morning, right? Just want to, we're talking about you, women. Does not nature, physis, itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is degrading, atemia, right? Or without value to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. Some of your hair is not very long in here, I'm just saying. 
for her hair is given to her for a covering. Okay, so here we have language used using about nature and what's natural, and it's really just cultural, right? I mean, we're talking about culture. Um, and things that are degrading or without value or purpose, you know, you can see he's making this point because he's speaking in Corinthians. He's speaking within the culture of the time. But what does he end up saying? Uh, but if anyone's disposed to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. It's like, what are you worked up about? This the stuff that you think is natural or unnatural. This is not what the church is about. This is not what Christ is about. For that matter, later in Romans, even God does things that are described as contrary to nature. Um, you have been cut. He's talking about grafting the Gentiles into the body of Christ. For you have been cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature by God into a cultivated olive tree. If you have been cut this way, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? So if contrary to nature is a shameful thing, then then God is doing, you know, this language is used to describe what, what God is doing, which is in this case an actually actually a good thing. So we just have to be very careful with the word with the language of nature um, with any of these Greek terms um, when we when we try to understand what they mean in that context and what they mean for us today. So it, it also has been suggested that really this passage in describe it would not same sex relations between women, lesbian relationships would not have come to mind for those who heard this. They're not when that says women exchange natural intercourse for unnatural. The first four centuries of writers in the church on this passage didn't talk about lesbian relationships. They talked about women having sexual relations, and I'll let this be in your imagination, in ways that wouldn't leave to, lead to the birth of a child. So a whole lot of options there, right? But it was, not, it was women with men that were, it was being referred to here, not lesbian relationships. At least the first four centuries of interpretation um, would, would lead us to believe this. Um, and then men giving up natural intercourse with women consumed with passion for one another. Again, we get back to what is natural, what is without value, what is without purpose. Um, so even taking this text that Paul uses rhetorically, even taking it within its context, there are questions about what these words are referring to. Um, and the point being, and we'll see this in this next little section, is that there's a really good case to be made that what Paul and the, the Jewish community were seeing in the pagan world is not what we're talking about in the church today when we're talking about committed same-sex relationships. Um, there was a lot of there were a lot of other things going on, which we'll we'll take a look at in this next section. Um, in First Corinthians, um, we have a vice list. You know, Paul, several places in his letters, lists all these things we're not supposed to do or be as the, as the body of Christ. And so he goes through these vice lists, kind of the opposite of, say, the fruits of the Spirit. It's the, the opposite of those. Uh, do not be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, robbers, none of these will inherit the kingdom. Um, of the of that vice list, these two in the third vice list in for in Corinthians, these two male prostitutes and sodomites um, show up. But the case 
made here is that, uh, and I think the, the, the speaker two weeks ago, I'm just blanked on his name, Smitty. Yeah, how can I forget that? Smitty um, covered some of this, um, but I think that he, uh, and he talked about the way you can translate these things, um, these, these particular Greek words. We're not going to get into that, but just to point out that in general, what was kind of prevalent in Greek culture um, were abusive relationships, um, uh, pederasty, um, pedophilia, pederasty, and um, sexual relationships within the context of occultic worship. So kind of an idolatry issue going on there too, but sex in a temple, in a pagan temple. Um, also men using boys for gratification. So definitely the age issue, the age difference issue there. And so the only examples available um, at the time for this kind of uh, same-sex relationship um, were those abusive um, relationships that for many other reasons we would consider uh, inappropriate. Oh, that's right. I forgot I had this slide in here. So uh, Octomire says, Paul's possible reference to same-sex behaviors in the last of these three vice lists makes perfect sense when we view it in historical context. The exploitative, cultic, and pederastic forms of same-sex behavior that were prominent in Paul's world were so obviously at odds with God's purposes that they fit the bill perfectly when Paul was looking for illustrations of patently unrighteous behavior. We recognize with Paul's original hearers that the violent, idolatrous, same-sex behaviors prevalent in the first century are completely inconsistent with God's gracious purposes for love, marriage, and sexuality. It would make no sense, however, to take this fragment from Paul's argument about our need to grow in faithfulness and use it to block committed gay people from entering into loving marriages that can actually help them grow in faithfulness. As we have seen, the committed, loving, gay relationships that are possible today can serve as powerful instruments helping people to grow into Christ-like love and self-giving. This is what God intends the gift of marriage to accomplish. It is precisely this kind of growth into the image of Christ that Paul commends to the congregation at Corinth. So I think the the thing that I come away with when I when I look at these studies of these words, when I when I look at the studies of the rhetoric that Paul um, was using, and when I think about the differences of the culture then and now. Um, is that I think that we can be biblical Christians. We can have a Christian faith and a Christian ethic that is grounded in scripture um, and be open and affirming of same gender relationships. Um, I also wanna say this, that an affirming stance toward same sex relationships, same sex marriage, the ordination of um, gay and lesbian and bi and trans people to, um, to ministry, um, does not require ignoring, watering down, discounting, or explaining away the biblical witness. Um, in fact, you could make the case that using the Bible to deny full access of same-sex couples to the covenant of marriage suggests perhaps a lack of knowledge 
and a lack of careful study of these Old and New Testament texts. At worst, it smacks of selective literalism. It smacks of self-righteous and judgmental hypocrisy that Paul was calling out the first hearers of the letter of Romans for which he was calling them out. So I just want us to, as, as the church, to um, have some humility and, and have some introspection about our very confident and sometimes too confident use of Scripture as we have over the centuries um, to exclude people that perhaps God is intending to fully include um, in the body of Christ um, as, a, as a fully biblical um, position, um, a fully biblical ethic. Um, in my last couple of minutes, I thought I would close by reading a quote um, from Colby Martin's book. Um, I think this is the last day we're actually using Colby's book. Is that right? Okay, so I'm not stealing anybody else's thunder. But he asks in one of his chapters called Imagine a Church Where. What would it look like to create a faith community where people learned to love themselves in a healthy way? which would free them up to love the people around them, all the while being grounded in the love of God. We envisioned a place where people were honest about their flaws, their fears, and their doubts, and also about their hopes, their dreams, and what makes them come alive. A place where people could connect with one another by removing the masks we wear to protect ourselves, where we see other hurting people and say, me too, a faith community that graciously holds space for all people, regardless of ethnicity, orientation, age, creed, or socioeconomic status, where people could catch on to the idea that love is better than hate, that peace is better than war, and that forgiveness is better than revenge, and that God is in the business of reconciling all things. I think this vision of an affirming community, an inclusive community, is the call of Christ for the church today. And I'm thankful for Fourth Press um, for engaging in this important conversation. Let me close this in prayer. Go with us, Lord, as we continue this journey together. Open our eyes and our hearts to the voices, the many voices in your church who are challenging the way that we have often and for a long time seen things. Help us to examine the scriptures with honest hearts, with honest minds, in a way that we are ready to be surprised and called forward into the transformation of the gospel. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. All right. Thanks.